Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. I know every week I say I'm really excited about today's conversation, but today I really, really am. We have a phenomenal guest, Professor Hadley Arcus. Professor Arcus has a long and storied career. He's the Edward Ney Professor Emeritus of Jurisprudence at Amherst College and the founder and director of the James Wilson Institute. Among the wide variety of journals and publications to which he has contributed, I think the most interesting fact is that the journal First Things takes its name from his own book of the same title. Today, we're here to talk about his most recent book, Mere Natural Law. You can find the book in the show notes. I can say that I personally really enjoyed it. It's fun, it's readable, it's super informative, so you should absolutely check it out. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, please, please, please subscribe, leave us some ratings and reviews. It really does help the podcast out a lot. So with no further ado, please enjoy. All right, Hadley, welcome to the show. It's a real joy to have you. Well, thanks thanks for having me in, Annika. So to kick us off here, I think as a Protestant in often quite Catholic circles, sometimes I get frustrated because the term natural law just gets bandied about without a lot of explanation. And it was always a little bit unclear to me, um, you know, where the roots of this came from, whether it's more so Aquinas, Aristotle or the Bible or in your book, you kind of propose a third potential pillar, just sort of plain common sense. So to kick us off, I'm going to talk about the legal portion in a bit, but just to kick us off here, how would you kind of describe what natural law is and and where it comes from? Well, as Aquinas and Thomas Reed and Immanuel Kant will tell you, it's the law that underlies the law. It's the law Mm -hmm. that tells you why you're justified in having positive law. So we see signs saying 65 MPH, 35 MPH, these are regulations, but behind mm. those regulations of the positive law, Kant would say, is an underlying natural law that tells you why you'd be justified in restraining the freedom of people to drive at speeds that put innocent life at hazard. And the task is ever, as Aquinas understood, with the natural law, there's always a need to translate the terms of the natural law into terms that bear on the terrain and circumstances before you, 65 miles an hour on the open highway, 35 on this winding road. But more than that, it's uh, it also tells you who has the rightful authority to make the positive law. I was at a meeting with Professor Amy Coley Barrett years ago, and she said she was a follower of Scalia. She put the accent on the positive law. One student said, well, why does the positive law elicit your reverence. What makes the positive law good? Why does the positive law in America stand on a higher plane than the positive law in Stalin's Russia? And they gave her pause. Well, actually, it was Locke who gave us the key to that. Locke raised a string of three questions. He said, what is the source of the law? The legislature that makes the law. Oh, then what is the source of the legislature? The Constitution that tells you whether you have a legislature. How many chambers? What kind of powers? Ah, then he says, then what is the source of the Constitution? 
it must be, he says, some source antecedent to the positive law. It tells you what would be the who would be the rightful authority, what would be the rightful authority to make the positive law. Now, for us in America, it was ran like this. All men are created equal. No man is by nature the rule of other men in the way that God is by nature the rule of men. Men are the, by nature the rule of horses and cows. The only rightful government over human beings comes as Rousseau and Black would say from the consent of the government. Now, I have some friends on the bench, namely Leo, who said, but that's not part of our law. It's never been enacted. But the response is, of course it couldn't be enacted, because that's a thing that had to be in place before you do who have the authority to enact anything. Now, if we have the time later, I could probably show you that it also can explain to us what are the properties of a law. But we maybe put that one off uh, until later. We'll see. But let's say we got we're launched into this thing. And of course... We were drawn to the things that were there before the Constitution. As we follow this to the American founding, we understand that the American founders, of course, did not draw their instruction from the Constitution. They began with these principles that were there before the Constitution. And they understood that they didn't invent them, and they'd be there even if there were no Constitution. So as John Quincy Adams said, that right to petition the government is simply implicit in the idea of a free society. It would be there even if it hadn't been mentioned in the First Amendment. It would be there even if there were no First Amendment. In fact, it would be there even if there were no Constitution. And my friend Greg Cassis, in his uh, brief in, in the argument of the Obamacare years ago, pointed out uh, Chief Justice Marshall in the gold Dartmouth College case saying, to impose upon people a contract they do not wish would be as bad as impairing the obligation of a contract they had willingly made. And Justice Story later would say that would be true. That principle would be true even if there were no constitution. So the point of what the book is to try to take people back to those anchoring axioms of common sense, those common sense principles. As Thomas Reed, the great Scott philosopher, was teaching these things, Thomas Reed who was read closely by James, runs through all James Wilson's exquisite lectures on law, read by Thomas, by James, John Adams and, and uh, Jefferson. But also, Thomas Reed was invoked by James Wilson in the opening lines of the first case to appear in the Supreme Court uh, uh, records, uh, Chisholm versus Georgia in 1793. Actually, it may be apt to, to recall that here, Annika, because he said, we're at the beginning of our law. We have no distinct precedents so far under this Constitution. So we have to go back to the general principles of jurisprudence. But beyond that, we have to go back to how we know anything. So he traces back to Dr. Reed and his principles of the human mind, which stood against the moral skepticism that prevailed in Europe at the time he wrote. So, again, the point here is to try to take things back hmm. to the point even antecedent to theories. Before people would say, Reed would tell us that those precepts of common sense that the ordinary person had to know before he started trafficking in theories. So before, you know, you don't certainly say this, before the, the ordinary person could start bantering with David Hume about the meaning of causation, he knew his own active powers 
to cause their own acts to happen. Hmm. So what I was trying to do in this book is to take it back with Thomas Reed to those anchoring precepts that the ordinary man not only has to know, but has to take for granted, as Reed said, and just in getting on with the business of life. Nothing obs- obscure, esoteric here. And to find out that's that's where the American founders made their way to anchor, their, explaining the grounds in which they're finding the grounds of their own judgment. Mm. So there are a lot of jumping off places there. Um, but I want to, again, okay. you know, you've written your book. It's called Mere Natural Law, evoking C.S. Lewis's right. humanity. Right. Um, which is a phenomenal book. And I want to read quickly here a quote that the first time I read the book was one of the quotes that stood out to me the most. Which Um, book, C.S. Lewis or mine? Mere Christianity. Right. Good. Um, So he says, you might as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. Men have differed as regards what people ought to be unselfish to whether it was only your family or your fellow countrymen or everyone, but they have always agreed that you ought not to put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. Men have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four, but they have always agreed that you must not simply have any woman you liked. And the reason, I mean, it's interesting because when I first read the book, it struck me, it struck me as an immediately true statement. But kind of now looking back on it, in some ways, it's a, a rare prediction that C.S. Lewis made that seems to have been proven wrong, where today people really do kind of lionize selfishness right. and, and polygamy and, and, you know, all the rest of it. Right. So I'm wondering, you know, when we talk about natural law, I mean, is that is that a counter argument, so to speak? Because it does seem like there genuinely is a push against there kind of being any limits at all today. No, the fact that somebody made a mistake doesn't mean to know. To know yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, what he was pointing to is something that I think is probably pretty well understood that you had in Plato, that the man who can respect the in, an interest beyond his own appetites, respect the law beyond his own needs and appetites, right. and respect the interests of others, is a better man than a man who knows no law beyond his own appetites and interests. Right, that's it. But of course, we know not all men are like that. So right. <laughs> revelation, revelation, not a revelation to to Lewis because he knew there was evil in the world. So he'd not be surprised that, but I guess he was going to point, well, if you understood this correctly, if you understood there is a moral world out there, there are these principles. Okay, but you have to put the principles in place first. And the principles I point to is what Aquinas in different ways and, and Thomas Reed and Kant would, would say as the very first principle of all moral mm-hmm. legal judgment, that first, as, as Kant would say, the moral law is the law that bears on people in the domain of freedom where they, had cho- they can choose one course rather than another. Or as Kant would say, it makes no sense to cast moral judgments on people for things that they're powerless to do. And Thomas Reed said, well, that, that, that is as true as any axiom in Euclid. We say, how do you put it, to, to approve or disapprove of a person on things he has no capacity to do is absurd. So we understand one of the first, first rules of, of practical judgment is that we don't hold people blameworthy right. for acts they were powerless to affect. And from that point, you can get many, many things in our law, not only the insanity defense, but down the road, I think, the wrong of racial discrimination but let's mm. say you have that, one of those anchoring truths. The something uh, Hamilton used to say, those things, remember Hamilton would give that in the opening class of, of um, 
the Fellows 37 on taxation, he, did, he spoke about the grounds of judgment. In, in disquisitions of every kind, there are certain primary truths or first principles upon which all subsequent reasonings must depend. These are things that must be grasped per se, though, to answer with the rules of geometry. Two lines cannot enclose a space, two things equal to a weak another. And one of those things that we grasp per se noted in its own terms are things like the law of contradiction. If you can't grasp it, I can't explain to you the form of demonstration. You must grasp it, it, two contradictory propositions, both but cannot be true. And in the same way, I think he'd say, well, you, you must grasp as a necessary truth that it makes no sense to cast judgments of praise or blame on people for things they're powerless to affect. So, Anik, if I stop there, let's say, I don't have a theory that two contradictory propositions both cannot be true. Nor do I have a theory that we ought not to hold people blameworthy and responsible for acts they're powerless to affect. So my point I put submit to you is, if you have a system of law that is indeed built upon axioms of that kind, it's not a theoretical system. It's not really a theoretical system. It's anchored in something that must be, is we grasp per se nota, ordinary people would understand and take it down to its axioms, and it would hold true. Look, there may be, you know, it's probably see me in the book that, well, we could always argue, was Jones really under medication? Was he under hypnosis? Was he weak? We can, there are all kinds of contingencies there and things that are manually variable. But the one thing that is never variable and never contingent, is the principle itself. If someone was incapable of performing the act, we know it makes no sense to hold him responsible. That principle will not change. Will it be true? Will it be true in Canada, in, in Africa, in the 19th century? No. It will be true wherever the laws of reason are intact. I said, well, okay, if that's the case, we're talking to something, a ground of moral judgment that will hold true. What well, Lincoln says, applicable in all times and places. If we have hold of it, if we get it right, we can make all kinds of mistakes. I used to do my course in, in, in Amherst called Political Obligations, a course in which a book called First Things Sprout. I used to say, this course could be given under the codicil that everything here could be wrong. Mm -hmm. Because if we say that, we imply there are right or wrong answers. Right. We, we will just give the right, which means we're implying that there are standards of judgment on which we could tell the difference between right and wrong answers, and the currency is going to be the giving of reasons. So my line is, if you, if you accept that, we're in the same game. We're in, this, we're in the same project. Okay. So there we have, let's see, we, we put in place some of the grounds, what, we, what I think we could, what I'm seeing, seeing as the ground of the natural, what the natural is, it's built upon premises of that kind, and where do you want to go from here? Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of wonder just sort of a quick one off that. I mean, you, you know, we're talking about, you know, people shouldn't be held responsible for things that they had no power to affect. Right. How do you view religion within that? Because that seems to me to be kind of a great area where sometimes people treat it, you know, like this was your choice to take this on. And, and frankly, a lot of religious people, when it's convenient, will treat it as though, you know, it's akin to racial discrimination. I had no choice but to be born Catholic or Muslim or whatever, right? What part, you know, um, as a great 
Theologian Robert Heron Bork once said, if that man truly came back from the grave, many things follow. As Father Lewis would say, there's some empirical dimension here that could be tested. Either he's coming back or he's not. We will, we will, we will, we will know. But it's, it's a mingling of it. You said natural law and Protestants. Certainly Protestants read Paul in Romans. When the Gentiles who have not the law do by nature the things of the law, they are as a law unto themselves. And I just came across passages by Augustine in the city of, of, of in, in the city of God, uh, book 19. He says, I'm, I'm going to explain these things, but instead of you appealing to faith, I'm just going to appeal to those reasoning accessible to everyone, which is to say the natural law. Actually, this is Aquinas' point, that the, the divine law we know through revelation, but the natural law we know through that reasoning that is accessible to human beings as human beings. And so much of what goes on, what's really curious part about what's happened in our religion is the courts have said, we're not sure what a religion is anymore, and we're not even clear that we're going to require theism, the presence of God, and become, it becomes really incoherent when you do that. And we have no broad grounds in which to establish judge the difference between a legitimate and illegitimate religion. So the Supreme Court several years ago, in the town of Greece case, established it was, it was constitutionally legitimate to have actual serious religious invocations before legislative assemblies. What that has done is produce a growth industry for Satanists and ministers of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Right. right. Okay. Now, if you don't understand the Declaration of Independence, the appeal to the creator who endowed us with right, right, so the author of the laws of nature, including the moral laws, it just can't be compatible that the God of Israel, the God of the Declaration of Independence, could possibly be compatible with Satanism, with the affirmation of radical evil. Whatever religion is, you know, we know it's people... Uh, our understanding that it's it's something it's a God who's directed to rightful ends, a God of justice, not a God who's you know uh, teaching lawless lawless and immoral things, uh, and and so much. But the curious thing is, as I start to say that, as people start defending their religious freedom, they start engaging in what John Courtney Murray called a libeling of their religion. So Mr. Green in the Hobby Lobby cases, he was set upon by Obamacare to start uh, mandating uh, contraception and abortion in his medical plans. He earnestly professed his belief that life begins as conception, his belief. So this was not something that had been an anchoring truth in the textbooks and embryology for years. So you notice, Cartney Mary would say, people, some people try to defend their religious freedom by first reducing their convictions on matters of religion and morality to things merely of belief, which have no claim to be respected as true, but anyone who doesn't share them. Say. And um, it's to say, well, if, see the, Catholic, see, the Catholics, for example, on the matter of abortion, the Catholics never appeal to faith. They say it's a combination of embryology. What takes the extra life from Aquinas? The natural law, the divine law we know through revelation, the natural law we know through that reasoning that is accessible to human beings so that, as human beings, and the Catholics will say, this is, here's an embryology, what we know of the, of the offspring in the womb, and then try to show us some principled argument to show that that offspring in the womb 
is anything less than human. And it proceeds in that way through natural law reasoning. And that's been part of all the, uh, all the traditions. It's, uh, there's always been this rational component. Now, there's some points that, you know, people have talked of Mary and so on. We're not going to, that those are going to be matters of faith. But within the public realm, it matters to us is the everything that we, the things we recognize in religion will have some theistic component to it. There must be God, not simply, as one, one litigant said, some force at work in the, in the universe. It could be, as Woody Allen said, just a great wind. Uh, and, and, and no, that's not, I think, a tenable understanding of what religion is. Uh, the different un- understandings of, of God and the orders, um, some of the, those orders may not be tenable if people are, think they're instructed to burn widows on funeral pyres. We have, in, in, no, ask James Wilson, because uh, my institute is named after James Wilson. He read Jean-Jacques Bellamy on the natural law um, in the 18th, 18th century writer, who said, you know, some people think that law is law because it emanates from a lawgiver, and some people think that law is law because it is in accord with reason. But he said, our confidence that the law emanates from a lawgiver is that it is really is in accord with reason. So I said, as a mark to one audience, that if, if, if Moses came down from Sinai and said to the Hebrews gathered around, the Lord our God told us, don't worry overly much about lying down with somebody else's wife. My hunch is the Hebrews gathered around would have scratched their heads and said, are you sure you got that one right? If this is, it's, the rational component has always been, look, what about Abraham confronting God over Sodom and Gomorrah? Will the order of the universe not himself be just? Would you, would you condemn, would you condemn the innocent? He was reasoning with God over what is rightful. Okay? It wasn't all coming from, from revelation. So it's, um, it's a mix. And, and there's no religion in this country, I think, would claim a religious exemption right now from respecting the laws that bar discrimination on the base of race. They don't do that. And when these things are planted deeply enough, we understand that there's, uh, there's, it's grounded in truths that are so compelling that they mu- we have to think they must be in accord with our religious teaching, you know. Um, but if you, um, if you find, well, I think a religious sect, once the Bob, Bob Jones variety would not ex- think thought there was a scriptural ground for racial segregation. But I, I thought that if somebody from the Bob Jones sect baked a cake, they refused, refused to bake a cake for an interracial wedding, I think that might not not be accepted. So we're getting to the point, though, in some of these cases, where the people who favor same-sex marriage, it's like that, or think it's wrong to to express an adverse judgment, and then the sexual orientation, God, there are some sexual orientations that are bizarre, that even the gay activists will reject. Okay, and you say, some of these people say, if if... No, those people who reject same-sex marriage are just wrong and wrongful. They're so convinced that they have a moral argument. And they think it is as wrong for people 
to invoke some kind of religious concern for evading the obligation to respect those laws that enjoin respect for same-sex marriage. And the point is just going to have, at some point, you're just going to have to meet that square on and say, why is it illegitimate for some people to hold to the notion that we are constituted as males and females, quite apart from the decisions on on, uh, transgenderism? Uh, Why is it illegitimate for us to hold that it was quite, there was a legitimate reason, plausible reason, to confine marriage to a legal commitment, a legal union of a man and woman who forego their freedom to quit this association as it suits their convenience, hence a legal commitment. And the child himself may understand that his parents have foregone their freedom to quit him as they've foregone their freedom to quit one another. That's a comprehensive comprehensible structure of understanding here is the, is the way human beings are generated through the, through the sexual coupling of men and women and the children who come for it represent, truly represent the one flesh union. They are both, they stand as, as uh, the embodiment of the marriage. There's a whole plausible construction. You say, well, why has it suddenly become illegitimate for someone to hold to that view? and to have serious questions about those who would call it into question. So at some point, that's just going to have to be faced head on. Because right now, the, the reigning orthodoxy, especially in the academies, anyone who calls that into question must be a bigot and uh, must, come, must run afoul of the law. So my, see, my opinion is that's going to be, have to be confronted head on directly. Because, well, for example, with this matter of, of sexual orientation, you know, we, you, you, you nodded to my point that the, even the gay activists will question whether some sexual orientations may be illegitimate. Uh, sex with animals, pedophilia, for example, there's an argument over the, the man-boy love associations should be called, included in the gay, gay rights parade. Well, if the, even the gay activists think that some sexual orientations may be illegitimate, then why can we be justified in a law that in a sweeping away bans all discriminations based on sexual orientation. Why don't you tell us what exactly what you have in mind? So in other words, one part of it is to just challenge the substance of it. Uh, Paul McHugh at uh, Johns Hopkins had this, these studies showing how unstable sexual orientation may be. He had a study of, of like 40 non-heterosexual women with this 10-year period and find some of them had had changed their sexual orientations three times. So when you're faced with these laws that um, want to punish you for having having a critical view on this matter of sexual orientation, part of it is to say, well, do you have a coherent sense of what it is you're talking about in the first place? What about the substance? Is, is, the, is there some kind of substance justification for what you're now imposing upon us? Instead of simply invoking our our, our religious uh, surety, you know the, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faiths once pointed out that there's not always been an Italy or a Hungary, but as long as there are human beings, there must be males and females. That is the strict meaning of sex, the telos, the purpose of it. And it's curious that when the court faced this matter of um, the Bostock case with Justice Gorsuch. They had to face the question, when Anthony Stevens earnestly 
says he regards himself as a woman. Everybody around him must respect that judgment, or else they're putting themselves and their employers in peril. And the conservatives just simply try to, well, what, is, what did sex orientation mean? What does sex mean in 1964? Instead of saying, quite apart from what you, the dictionary said, what does sex really mean? Why are we not appealing to the objective truth that lies at the core of the matter? And for some curious reason, you may know, you've studied cons- uh, uh, law with, with, with Robbie George. Some of the conservatives have this sense that these, no, these are not questions they can reach. It must be part of their code to steer around those vexing moral questions if they can, to try to find some procedural ground on which we can settle. But it's given us a jurisprudence in which some are, are notable jurists are reluctant to move beyond the statute to the deep objective truths that stand beyond the statute in the way that the American founders were not reluctant to make that move. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that you point to how deep this hesitancy towards defining things is, both on the left and really on the right. I mean, one kind of funny or little crazy example, I was a part of uh, my campus, um, you know, conservative publication, the Stanford Review. Oh, you're at Stanford? You immersed in Stanford? I was. I just graduated. Yeah. Oh, I was almost by, I was almost canceled there. Okay. (laughs) We, as kind of a joke, you know, Stanford Review is a semi-satirical sometimes magazine. We founded our own religion. And theoretically, I mean, the the goal was because everyone hated the meal plan. The only rule of the religion was that you could not eat food from the Stanford cafeteria. (laughs) Food in the campus cafeteria. Right. In other words, you so you could get a religious exemption to the meal plan. <laughs> okay. um, and <laughs> there was no issue with it. We filed with the IRS. Everything was hunky-dory. It worked? Yeah. It worked? There, was, there was no, I mean, the only objection basically, you know, were people like me who were like, I'm, you know, have a prior commitment to a different religion. Okay. And, That's you know. terrific. That's true. Annika, let's take that. <laughs> what is there about what you did that established yeah. the bona fides? that makes that considered plausibly a claim made on behalf of religious freedom. What made it a religious claim? Well, none. I mean, it was an openly satirical religion, and yet it was a right-wing publication that did it. And, you know, the left-wing IRS and university bureaucrats ushered it through, and there was no complaint at any point that it was, you know, openly satirical. Is it because they want to make comparable claims themselves or something else? Um, Like like a religious... (laughs) A religious conviction that the, the laws barring abortion should not be binding on them? Yeah, I yeah, that'd be Something a question I would have for you, I think. You're more qualified to answer than I. <laughs> well, it's it's the uh, uh, it's what you got from the court in the nineteen seventies with Justice Black saying, Well, these people just have these strong views, they're passionate views and, and they take the place of religious <laughs> conviction. Yeah. You don't, you don't need any sense of the of the origins of the world, of, of a God who is a creator, and an order of things, just anything you feel passionate about. By that point, you've just made a nullity uh, of religion. You're not talking about the same thing. Yeah. But for you, so you pulled that one off. Who had to make the judgment as to whether that was a plausible religious argument? Somebody actually, in administration at Stanford? I'm actually not sure. I wasn't, I was not yet, I was only like a freshman at that point. So I wasn't oh, yet involved really? in the leadership process. <laughs> so this was circa, yeah. two, this was circa 2019? Yeah, that'd be 2017 or 18. Yeah. Okay, it was 2019 that the left wanted to be barred from speaking on the campus, the law school. 
Mm. I was not given the same treatment that Judge Duncan, Kyle Duncan, was given. They didn't have the, those screaming characters blocking Oof. my speech. But it was it was clear that this, the the hostility to someone yeah. with a different perspective was was was, was manifest. Yeah. Well, it's interesting also then because you, I mean, you talk about, I mean, a little bit pushing against like the hardcore free speech, you know, element on the right in your book. I mean, talk a little bit about that because I think that, I mean, (laughs) on the right corners of the right, um, you know, there's really a push to be, you know, absolute free speech absolutists. And and according to you, the natural law actually might push against that in, in some circumstances. Well, it's, it's, you know, the American founders understood, and Kant would, you know, Kant would explain to us, I think, there's nothing you can name uh, using a pen, driving a car that cannot be part of, of a means and chain leading yeah. in a hurtful direction. I could use a pen to defraud or to donate to charity. I could use, I could drive for the ambulance, drive them off for the mafia. The American founders, like John Ash understood, there's nothing categorically innocent about speech. Right. Speech could be used to assault, to, to terrorize. This the, the threatening phone call in the middle of the night, the burning of a cross outside the home of a black family, kind of a, 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 an expressive gesture. Yeah. Uh, this could injure, and they it, they took these things seriously. John Marshall said anyone who publishes a libel in this country, even with the First Amendment, can be sued or indicted, sued for personal damages, or indicted for seditious speech, inflaming hatred. Toward right. a racial or religious group. So the classic understanding was, uh, yes, yeah, speech can be a vehicle for harm as much as anything else. And we do have to consider uh, the standards for, for uh, regulating it. And the, but the classic standards coming through the old Chapinsky case were really what, common sense of, 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 of ordinary language. Ordinary people will understand those terms that are established right now as terms of denigration or assault. Um, the N-word for blacks, kike bastard, so on. Uh, okay, uh, urologist, maybe a, a, something on the borderline, who knows. Um, give people, and truck drivers do this as well as anyone else. It's ordinary language. People understand it. And if you're in doubt, no, you don't hold people responsible for, 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 for engaging in a uh, an assault. Ordinary people know the difference between the crowd that welcomes the Red Sox back home as to winning the World Series and the menacing crowd standing outside the home of a black family newly moved into the neighborhood, not throwing anything, but just standing there as a menacing presence. We can gauge these things. And the, the critical distinction often in the past, it's very simple. That's what we have to go back to. From Justice Murphy in the Chaplinsky case, we said, these things are not necessary to the exposition of ideas. That is, was Mr. Rosenfeld, Rosenfeld, before the PTA in New Jersey, had one adjective, ev- mother effing. Every other word was mother effing. He said, well, if we try to restrain Rosenfeld from using that kind of language, it just destroys the climate of civic discussion. We're not, dis- we're not restraining him. We're not removing the freedom to give the most searing critique of the school board. And if Chief Justice Berger said, and that couple who may be locked in a sexual embrace outside of City Hall, working out a metaphor of what they think the, 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 city, the mayor's administration has done to the city, you can restrain them from putting on that act to shock ordinary people. 
without restraining in the least their freedom to make a substantive argument. So the point is, is that you, you, you can't say there are no standards here. There are standards of judgment. There are understandings of her harms that are inflicted. But we draw the line between, first, those things that are understood by any ordinary person in the ordinary language as terms of assault. And we recognize that we can restrain them without arguments. But now I just I just saw a meeting in, in a meeting in Wisconsin, which turned around. What some people want to say is, your argument against abortion will hurt somebody. It'll make people feel unsafe. So instead of starting with the things that are really assaulting, making room for argument, the other this approach is say, here are things we don't like. Here are things we find we find objectionable. We here are th- arguments we think will hurt people who don't agree with it, and we take that as the ground for silencing speech. In other words, you're not respecting the difference between terms of assault which are no part of the exposition of ideas or arguments mm. and the giving of substantive arguments. My thing is that is the clearest ground that ordinary people understand. The police understand it. As I show in my book, a case in which the cops show themselves to be better jurists than the members of the Supreme Court. You know, they, in the old Tarmaniello case, there's a riot, a riot here. They're trying to restrain the people who are getting violent outside the hall and inside the hall. They're not taking the violence of the crowd as the predicate for silencing the speaker. They move to silence the speaker only when he starts using the kind of language they readily understand as the language that inflames. And then they hold him responsible, okay? These are things that ordinary people understand. There's there's nothing inscrutable about them. And uh, what's remarkable is for the court to, members of the Supreme Court, what I think is a, defen- a defensive relativism, as I say in the book, they're worried, worried about conservative speakers being pushed off the campuses as they are. They're trying to get a wider line and protect all speech. But, you know, as the late Stan Evans said, the problem with pragmatism is that it doesn't work. Yeah. And that if you buy onto the logic of relativism, there is nothing offensive in principle. Then, if, if, if we're relativists, on what ground does free speech itself offer itself to us as a good? Why is it a good to be treasured, to be protected, if it's all relativistic? You know, on the scheme, scheme of relativism, we could regard any, any speech as, as, as harmful, as we're seeing now on the campuses. So I don't think you find the right uh, response to this problem of intolerance by retreating to relativism. You're simply cutting the ground out from under the, your moral defense of free speech or anything else. Mm. There's a, somebody, a friend of mine, found marvelous speech of Mussolini's in 1920 saying, the great advantage of relativism, it proves that we can't be wrong. <laughs> that, that we can adapt <laughs> our fascist program in its fullest scope. And who can say we're wrong? Wow. That's amazingly prescient. (laughs) That was Um, yeah. Wow, Um, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's so important, you know, the point that you make in your book about the home that this kind of thinking has found on the right, uh, and you call it in your book, I think, a soft and strategic relativism, which is such a phenomenal phrasing for it. I mean, talk to me a little bit about, I mean, it's, it's tempting to just say, oh, people are just 
cowardly. They're afraid of definitions and they don't want to be pinned down. Um, but there have been, you know, pretty whatever, well-educated, well-respected people, including, yeah. I think, much of the, the, you know, current and former Supreme Court who have, you know, really held by this line, avoiding defining certain key terms, um, you know, or been relativistic about certain points. Talk to me a little bit about where that comes from. I mean, how did this find such a home on the right? Wait, and let me get the last slide of yours. What is it, the key terms that they're not, not clear about? Um, I mean, I think the example that you give in your book is religion, but I imagine there are others. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, well, what comes about is just, just the ethic of relativism, you know, mm. not wanting to find fault, wanting to be open, nothing to be too critical, but, you know, you're, you're, you don't, you know, as the court said, you, if people want to burn widows on sacrifice, so we can't permit it even if it occurs under the auspices of religion. We still are not bereft of moral judgment, and religion has, our, our defense of religion as a moral defense has to take place within a moral framework, right? So part of the thing is to attempt to enlarge our tolerance of religion and by removing any kind of moral restraints, any kind of moral tests. And then you go back to, well, all I ask is sincerity. Yeah. But sincerity is simply a way of smuggling in a moral concern for the back door. The yeah. church with flying spaghetti monster would say, why can't you have us an insincere, why do you have to have a sincere religion? Why can't we have a, an insincere religion that claims a religious right not to eat the food in the dormitory in the in the in the, in the uh, dining rooms at Stanford? Why isn't that a sincere? So what, it, the move to emancipate people from those moral moral judgments, people casting moral judgments on people, is that's this is not is not the most dominant map, motive toward toward relativism to say no. I'm really resisting people casting judgments on me. But usually people are not reluctant to cast more judgments on others. Like uh, people, I we really, people should not cast more judgments. And I'm um, I would cast the more judgment on those people who would cast more judgments on. Them. <laughs> uh, it's the it's the, the dogmatism of relativism as yeah. we used to say. So I think we think. Uh, by the way, Annika, I, I hope I, I hope I wouldn't offend you by by thanking you for you, you've got the right. You're leaving with just the right question. I hope I'm not offending you oh. by, 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 by saying that, because uh, you're, you're really touching. You really are touching the key points there, and and again, I think it's motive behind all this is a kind of people wanting to free themselves from the hurt of moral judgments. Hmm. It's, it's tough, of course. Of course, the very point of a moral judgment is that we we move to the level of, of a we stop speaking about merely private tastes and likes and dislikes. We start speaking about the things that are more generally or universally right or wrong, just or unjust, for others as well as ourselves. And means we're talking, we are we are putting in place the things that are wrong even for ourselves. Yeah. Okay. And if we, um, you know, it's also matter to see those 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 things in the nineteenth century. Uh, for example, in what's the name? Uh, I forgot the book about slavery. Um, I think it's Kenneth Stamps citing one slaver and said, if slavery was such a good thing, I should be willing to will it for my family. Right. But I'm not. Right. And therefore, he works his way through. The, it's, it's the culture of the South. He works his way through the syllogism to say, no, 
it's something I would not impose on myself. I would not should not impose it on others. Okay. Yeah. So people often you know, do work through that. With that great um, uh, gathering of of slaveholders in Darien, and George in 1775, saying the. Slavery is simply incompatible with those principles we are contending for now in the revolution. So we vow ourselves to manumit our own slaves and try to seek their safety and protection. I mean, it's simply a moral recognition breaking through. People say, no, I would, no, if this were such a good, I'd be willing to apply it to myself, and I'm not. Oh, that leads on to another path, though, which I think where, we, where we're going, where we're going with with that one yeah yeah there was one there's one yeah attempted to put to you mm-hmm. as uh, maybe something maybe you would work through with me okay have let's do it <laughs> I, I, I trust you to work through. but what the natural law to do and tell you what is the law in the first place yeah and we try this with longer can you give us your natural reaction to the case and i begin by uh, recently what i've been trying recently is to recall the scene I worked into my book, Philosopher of the City, back in 1981, where in the late 70s, I think, I, I encountered the only X-rated program on Capitol Hill, uh, Dr. Judith Densengerber, a specialist in child abuse, doing a, um, a presentation on the abuse of children. I, I sh- perhaps shouldn't get too graphic here, even for you, but say she's showing examples of sexually transmitted diseases in an 18-month girl and a nine-month-old child. Now, now I say, we find the man who's done this. And we say, how does the community respond? We say, let's offer him a tax incentive to induce him to stop. <laughs> now, see, you laugh. Like, the, the laugh is the mark. As, as you in comedy, the laugh is the mark, but people get the point. Yeah. And, and the lawyers, they don't know what to do with this. Why is that laughable? See, because we think, so we ask Annika, what do you think the natural response of people would be? No, I don't want to make a contract. I give them a Netflix experience. What will it take to make you stop or make a contract? No. Yeah. We're not making contracts. The, proper, the most natural response is a command. Stop. Yeah. Stop doing, which implies we think what you're doing is wrong. When we say wrong, do we mean it's wrong only for Jones who's doing it? Are we saying, no, we really mean it's wrong, wrong for anyone to do, which, in other words, we are drawing upon the logic of a moral proposition. But there you get in the capsule the classic understanding you find in Aristotle between morale, the logic of morals, the logic of law. We start, we come to the recognition that a parent torturing a child stands in the class of a wrong. It is so bad. We have to forbid it. Forbid it to whom? We forbid it to anyone who does this. We forbid it, that is, with the force of law. And that, I think, it's, it's just, again, what I'm saying, it's just a natural reaction. If you just have a natural reaction to that one case, you understand at once the, the moral grounds of the law, the connection between the logic of morals and the logic of law, the classic understanding. And, of course, you might say the natural law begins with a natural reaction here what is a natural reaction to this kind of thing stop it stop it you know there's a marvelous passage in aristotle the politics where he says if you have people commute ten thousand people living together and they're doing everything by contract everything by contract that 
never do they use a moral, a, a moral objection. Stop doing that. Never voice a moral objection. He says, they're not in the state of a They don't a polis. If they're in a polis, a polis would contain the purpose and interest of shaping the moral character of the people in the community by teaching through the laws the thing that this community regards as, as wrongful. See, so if you find people around them just gauge meals and wheels, going to restaurants together, marrying together, but no one ever, think, ever comes to a judgment that things truly wrong enough to be condemned and forbidden, it's not a real polity. Mm-hmm. Not a political order, as Aristotle understood, a moral association that has an interest not only in protecting people, their lives and property, but shaping the moral terms in which we live together as a community. So with the last, unfortunately, we are running a bit short on time, but I want to definitely take the time to get your views uh on originalism, which has become in certain legal right-wing circles kind of a hot-button issue recently. I mean, famously, I mean, sort of interesting, right after Dobbs, which is a huge victory for the originalist legal movement, there's also, I think, as much criticism of originalism as there's ever been, particularly from, you know, corners like Adrian Vermeule's book, which made a big, big wake, I guess, kind of in that area. So I'm wondering, I mean, your kind of honest assessment, where has originalism succeeded? Where has it failed? Is there somewhere that we should be moving instead? Well, I just, I have a friend, David Fordy, professor of law, who's always been on the, on the positivist side and, yeah. and cautioned me. And he wrote me, a, he read the book and he said, what you've given us in the sense of what originalism really should be, a full-bodied mm. originalism that is really connected to the un- moral, moral understandings of the founders. Instead of giving an originalism, that is so crimped that it fears moving outside the text because it really fears there are no moral truths outside the text. Yeah. It really dubious about that. That that you like that just just gets me when people said anyone who goes beyond the text is simply looking inside himself. In other words, the assumption is there are no yeah. moral truths right. outside the text. So what I don't think we're doing is trying to recall the way that first generation did it. You yeah. know. Now the thing with um, you know, the, the Dobbs case was, I was as happy as anyone to see the great white whale uh, sl- sl- slain in their Roe versus Wade. But those of us who worked in the pro-life movement before Roe, this, this did not accomplish what we set out to accomplish. Mm. Because not as a matter of uh, inadvertence, but deliberate, de- deliberate, deliberately, the majority really withheld premises that are vital to the pro-life movement in moving forward, most notably the refusal to recognize the human standing of the child in the womb. And the, the dissenters nailed this one. They said the conservatives, the majority, takes pride in not expressing a view about mm. the status of the fetus or the claim of the state to protect life in the womb has, there's no part of the majority's analysis in the case. So it withholds the critical premises that we need in sending the matter back to the state. If you send a matter back to the state saying, we're dealing well with a human being, so it's up to you to consider how the taking of this human life will be reconciled with your other laws on homicide, because the laws on homicide have ever been indifferent to the size and age and weight of the victim. And if it's really human life, 
then the Congress could be involved. You know, as, as Robbie George and Josh Craddock and Ivan, the for, Congress could be involved under the Fourteenth Amendment. If the protections of life are being withdrawn from a whole class of human beings, well, there's ground for Congress to act. But the court simply gave us the notion that somehow it's a matter to be referred to the states, that the national government should not have a prime role in it. Because, see, the conservative argument in the beginning was the wrong of this was that abortion is not contained in the text of the Constitution. And therefore, the federal judges are not in a position to proclaim any rights emanating from the Constitution. But actually, no, no, I, I, I was I something I just used the other day, and I find it's the thing that explains the book. Do you remember the, the, the psychologists will have this picture by a, a, a shadow, shadow of them, where you see either, you may see a lady with a hat, or you may see a vase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you see the vase, if you see the lady in the hat, you don't notice the vase, and vice versa. Okay. We had this in 1973. The, the, let the lawyers from Texas in Roe assembled the most exquisite brief with updated evidence in embryology to show that offspring in the womb has never been anything other than human from its very first moments. It receives its nourishment from its mother, but it's never been merely a part of the mother's body. Okay, They established that. Now, at that moment... The, dissent, the conservatives in Rome could have said, the wrong of this case is that the state of Texas has brought forth compelling evidence to show this is a small human being and there are ample grounds for protecting a small, vulnerable human being for having its life taken for reasons we would never accept for the taking of any other human life. That is one ground. And if this, but the, that's not the ground that dissenters took. They simply said, this is wrong because it's judicial overreach. It's wrong judicial. Why? Because abortion is not contained in the, in the, uh, in the Constitution. Judges may not proclaim any rights. It's simply raw judicial power. So when it came down to the Dobbs case, are they saying, yes, there's raw judicial power. All we're doing is we're overthrowing that mistake. It would have been different if we'd said, if the dissenters said it in the first place, if they brought in the material from the from the lawyers, look at all the material establishing the human standing of this child in the womb, we'd have had a different understanding of what the whole question was about. So in one critical moment, we turned away the conservative movement and the originalists with this, turned brought onto this, turned away to the notion that the question here is whether the state of Texas or any other state had a justification in extending the protections of law over these vulnerable human beings. That was not the question. The court, as, as the dissenters said, the, this, this conservative majority did not rest its judgment at all in any judgment about the nature of the child in the womb and whether the state may move to protect it. They were not moved by concern for the child in the womb. They were moved by a theory, a theory of jurisprudence that say they should not be reaching this if abortion is not contained in the Constitution. But as you know, you've, you've read me say, marriage was not contained in the Constitution when they struck down the laws that barred interracial marriage in 1967. And as my dear friend Gerald, um, Gerald Bradley at Notre Dame pointed out, the federal government had ample reason to make abortion its business 
when it had to deal with abortion in military or diplomatic outposts abroad, military hospitals, abortion in the territories, or the District of Columbia. And two years before Roe versus Wade, the court had sustained, in the Vujic case, the laws that barred abortion in the District of Columbia. It can't, it can't be that somehow abortion is not part of the federal concern or federal business just because it's not contained in the text. That was a false and, and, and um, really, what's the word I want? Distracting. It, it distracted conservatives for a generation, distracted them from the thing, the substance thing before them. So the conservatives at that moment saw the lady in the hat, and they never saw the vase. Right. They saw the lady in the hat. Ah, you are simply... Reaching in a subject that is unfit for judges to reach, and that's all the judgment they that's the only judgment they could reach in Dobbs, because that's the only judgment they ever promised that they would reach. Well, if you'll permit me one last question. Uh, it's really interesting. Do you have time for just just one more? <laughs> oh, I think you're very sweet. Oh, we oh we've gone on. No, you're you're it's just showing very engaging. So happy happy <laughs> You've been very patient with me. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, I've really been enjoying this. I'm learning a lot from this conversation. Um, I think a lot of people, um, you know, they are very concerned about, you know, the left co-opting what the right takes on. Um, And particularly, I think that's one reason that people tend towards an originalism that just looks in the text that doesn't go beyond to what's your moral judgment, because people are aware and afraid of the fact that, you know, conservatives don't have the culture and a lot of people's moral judgments would not be in accord with maybe what you would say the natural law decides. So I'm wondering if you have any, you know, responses to that criticism or ways to move forward given given that. Oh, well, as President Nixon used to say, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a laughable thing among, among my mm-hmm. many people I know. The left, our people say, you see what zany things these people have done with moral reasoning? We'll show them. We'll just forego moral reasoning altogether. We'll show them. And by foregoing reasoning, we're going to embarrass <laughs> um, the Stephen Reinhardts in California. We're going to embarrass all those people who used moral reasoning. Yeah, there was no answer to the problem. If you think, guess what? It can't be a revelation to grown-ups that people will... <laughs> seriously disagree about weighty matters. The problem is if, if you think that the other side has given us specious uh, uh, arguments while, while saying here are, the, here are these moral implications that you don't find in the text, well, the, the, the way to counter that is to show why that reasoning is specious. But of course, it's not bizarre to say that things come into sight now that hadn't come into sight earlier. You know, uh, the thing I've often, part of often made, that um, Lyman Trumbull, when he was managing the 14th Amendment in the standard, had to assure his colleagues up and down that nothing in that 14th Amendment was going to challenge those laws in Illinois as well as Virginia that barred marriage across racial lines. And he knew that if he couldn't get that assurance, that 14th Amendment didn't have a ghost of a chance of passing. Right. But now we see, if you really understood the full implication of the principles, of course, when you're turning away a couple for marriage and because of the racial composition of the couple, that is in fact a discrimination based on race. Now, you say, my point is, it's not a knock 
on Lyman Trumbull that he didn't see at the time all the, the fuller implications arising from his own principles. Because we could say for ourselves that our own life is a life, our lives are lives in which we discover along the way implications of our own principles that appear to have gone unnoticed. So it's not inconceivable, as the Attica, that, yeah, judges will say, hey, you know, um, the Constitution says nothing about presumed innocent till proven guilty, but it must be there, no? The Constitution says nothing about people should not be held blameworthy for acts they're powerless to effect, but it must be there, isn't it? People will discover these impl- it, it can't be a shock that people could discover implications of these principles. They're brought unnoticed. So the p- response is, there you go, yeah. using moral reasoning, you know, this villainy. The proper response is, if you think it's wrong, show them why it's specious. Show them why it's to take the equal protection clause. Why is it that the equal protection clause will somehow give a license to kill innocent ch- children in a womb? Tell us why it works in that way. Tell us why the liberty clause gives you the rights of sodomy and same-sex. How do you get there from here? It's it's it can't be don't it can't find the solution by denying the liberty clause and denying in this. It's not to be found in the clauses. Not to be found in the clauses. I was just right. Just comment I was, I was just going to make in a couple of days. We say, you know, we find judges say, people say, when can judges? properly invoke the natural law, that is a sign that they've missed the point completely. But part of our object, that's just the way that Socrates called philosophy down out of the clouds to bring it to bear on those questions of right and wrong, just and unjust, that rise in our daily lives. I think we're trying to bring the natural law down out of the clouds to tell people it's, it's not a theory hovering there. It's 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 yeah. grounded things like, you're right, may not hold people responsible for acts they were powerless to affect. It's, it's grounded in things of, of, of that kind. And to say, the judges, uh, the judges don't realize it every day. This is, this is running through their judgments without their even noticing it. So I used to say, to ask whether the judge could get through the day without using the reasoning of the natural law is like asking, can I order the coffee without using syntax? <laughs> no, it's there. But it struck me. This you could put this this thing to people. If you want to try this out, I guess I will make. It. Ask the judge, the skilled judge. We have a statute that bars racial discrimination in private enterprises open to transactions with the public. Now, to the judge, why do you assume that that statute must apply universally and equally? To everybody who comes within the term, everybody owns a private business. Why do you assume it applies? Why do you assume it's a moral logic? We say, if it's wrong to own slaves, for whom is it wrong to own slaves? Anyone, everyone. If it is wrong to discredit, it's wrong. How do you account for why that you see that moral logic attached to law? There's no clause in the Constitution that tells you that. Why do you assume it's there? And if you want, somebody says, I want not to be held under the obligation of a law that's binding on everyone else, you say, well, that state of affairs needs to be justified. Why do you say that? Why do you say you need to be just, justified that your, your freedom not to be bound by a law that rightly bounds everybody else? Where do you get that from that it needs to be justified? My point is that moral logic is simply built into what we understand law to be. 
We're at the point, it is so built in, so ingrained that we just don't notice it. Just unaware of it. Mm. So I'm saying the judges don't seem to be unaware that it's with them every day at every turn in everything they do. Well, thank you so much, Professor Arcus. This was a phenomenal conversation. I've learned so much. Um, your book is linked in the show notes, and I really encourage everyone to go out and purchase it. It's phenomenal. You are so dear. You, you, I think I've told you everything I know. <laughs> well, there you have it, Madisonians. Dr. Hadley Arcus on his new book, Mere Natural Law, which once again is linked in the show notes. Absolutely check it out. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find out more about the Madison program at our website, jmp.princeton.edu. You can also follow us on social media, on Twitter, at Madison Program, as well as on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks so much for tuning in, and catch you next time here on Madison's Notes.